Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everyone. I would love to take several minutes to uh, do an intro and just catch up on the week and tell you how much I love you guys in general to spend a few minutes getting going. Uh, but I've been reminded uh, that it's hot out here and that that's not that welcome. So, um, not all of you have these poppy, popped up gazebos like I do. I know there's a few that choose to sit in the sun. You are brave. Way to go. I love the Eversons right there, front row. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know if they're Baptists or not. Um, they potentially, you guys are out here potentially enduring the heat uh, and ridicule of others and all the other things that you have come to know as outdoor services. I am going to then read our passage and get right to it after we pray. So let's look at Ephesians 3. Uh, we'll read the first seven verses and then we'll pray and we'll go together. Ephesians 3, 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you, read, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We worship you together. We pray your grace upon us today. Bless your people with ears to hear, with endurance to withstand the heat and distractions. And would you teach us today through the preaching of your word. Lord, we are loved by you, and because of that, we respond with sincere hearts of thanksgiving and praise. We love you, Christ. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. I grew up in a, in a Christian home, wonderful Christian parents who uh, really tried to live their lives according to the Bible. Um, there was always a clear understanding that the Bible was the word of God given to his people. It was authoritative for all manners of life. And of course, with that conviction came a lot of Bibles around our house. My dad had his own Bible and my mom had her own Bible. And when I got to a certain age, they had given me a Bible to use as well and my sister's. And then, of course, we had a kind of family Bible that was by the kitchen table, so we could use that for family devotions. And then there's a few on the shelf uh, for either visitors or I don't know what else you would potentially use them for, but uh, we had several of these. But my favorite Bible was probably my dad's. It had this really smooth leather cover. And if you know what I mean, like it, when it was closed, you look on the side, it looks like gold on the outside. And it had some of those, uh, those little tabs in there. But probably one of my favorite parts of it was that when you open to the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were parts that were in red, like, and it was just bright compared to the rest of the black and white. We got the, the red letters. I thought this was so cool, and um, it was really pretty, and obviously meant that those words 
were way more important than all the other words. Because they're red, that must be the most important ones. Now, I didn't realize until later on in my life that there was a whole section of people that actually truly believed that this was the most important words in all of the Bible, and the other ones were subpar, even to the point that they didn't matter. This is like a red-letter Christian in a sense that we only listen to the words of Jesus, the God-man, and that's the only one that's authoritative compared to the rest. Like the rest of it is just context, and the, only the words of Jesus mattered for us. Now, on the surface, this can, it can sound really you know, attractive and, and good, like, yeah, let's listen to the God-man, Jesus Christ, and not all the other guys. Let's hear what he has to say. Um, you know, it's, it also, if you think about it, it trims that big book of 66 books down into something like a pamphlet. And it's, a, it's pretty easy to carry around, and you can very easily say to your friends, yeah, I read the Bible like seven times last year. You know, it was great. It's, it's much easier to deal with. Um, but, of course, we know that there are several problems with the view of this being the only authoritative scripture. But at the center of it is the fact that God himself chose to work through human beings to reveal himself. That he spoke, and it was through his prophets and his apostles and those that would speak the word to the nations and to his people. It was not that these specific writers or preachers or fishermen or shepherds or lawyers or kings were just as authoritative as Jesus was. That wasn't the point. No, they had, they had no authority in themselves. What they did have, though, was the message, the revealed word of God to his people. These truths, you know, are, are, are not the people's alone, those shepherds and those preachers and those kings. They're not their words. They are the words of God. It's God working to reveal truth to specific men by having them write them down and give them to men and for them to know the heart and the revelation of God. Today, when we get to Ephesians 3, we see here in chapter 3, in case we're tempted to think that what Paul is doing is nice commentary or just notes on the rest of the Bible and what Jesus said, we get a very clear understanding that these are, God's, these are God's revealed words to his people. It's God's message given to Paul to steward. These truths are not Paul's. They have been the gracious gift of God given to him for the sake of the Gentiles. And what we'll know as you keep reading, it's not just for the Gentiles, but it's the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, for everyone. It is God's word to humanity. Now, you and I might already, we are already kind of like, yeah, Chris, we know that already. We, we get that. We read this, and we, it's in our Bible. It's obviously the real deal. And so it may not be important to us. But it's really incredibly important that we understand that Paul's words to us here in this book of Ephesians are every bit as authoritative as the red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because they are given by the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, when we begin to read chapter 3, we're immediately, well, if we're just honest about it, we're immediately annoyed as like uh, grammarians because it's an enormous sentence and he doesn't finish the sentence. If you look there, especially in your English version, you're going to see he starts an idea, but he never finishes it. Like by two or three sentences in, he starts talking about the subject of the sentence instead of actually just saying the sentence. So he starts the sentence, seems to never finish it, and he tells us the first half of something but we're wondering when he's actually going to finish that thought. He seems to give us the subject and then talk about the subject and nuance the subject so that we're not unclear about what he's talking about in the subject itself, which is I, Paul. Paul begins with a statement that he doesn't finish right away. 
He references something that he's said in the past. He says, for this reason, but then he moves on to identify himself. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ of the Gentiles. And at this point, he knows that it's important to stop and explain this title that he's given to himself. It gives him credibility and shows his people who are reading it, us, that there's something about Paul and what has happened to him that should make us all listen very closely. But why? Why would it be important for him to remind his readers that he was an apostle given revelation? Well, if you remember the structure of the book, it's really kind of simple. The first three chapters and the last three chapters. One through three are identifying and theology-ridden, heavy and telling us who we are in Christ. And the second half is telling us what we ought to do. It's kind of like, here's who you are. This is what you're supposed to do. So when we get into chapter four, it's going to be really uh, quite a shock because all of a sudden he's going to tell us, do this, do that. Here, I'm just going to, just a quick little breeze over. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He says to put off the old selves, put on the new selves. He says, be angry and sin not. We're commanded to speak truth to one another. And the list goes on and on and on. Up to this point, he hasn't commanded us to do these types of things. Paul's about to hit us really, if I can say it this way, I'll get a little skeptically. He's about to hit us with a whole bunch of Christian rules about what we are to do, these commands. And if you think about what he's done so far, you can see that this is a logical flow and that he is doing his best to keep us thinking and acting the right way according to the new identity that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. He's trying to help us here. He began, if you remember this, it's just a quick overview, in chapter 1 by explaining and then rejoicing in the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Not only do we get a glimpse of that, we also understand that in verses 9 through 10, it is giving us a seed and the guarantee of what's to come. Something wonderful that he'll unite all things in himself in heaven and on earth. And at the end of chapter 1, he kind of stops off and prays a prayer of thanksgiving for these saints. He was praying for these actual people. He talked about it at the beginning, and then he says, I pray for them, for you guys. These realities are yours. And then he even prays for them that they would know the hope, that they would understand that they are an inheritance, that they would know this God and live in light of him. Because he understands that when you and I understand or know these things to be true, it changes the way that we live and causes us to live rightly. In chapter 2, Paul zooms in a little bit, though. And we did this. We saw that he shows us the immensely gracious nature of our salvation, that we were dead. I mean, dead. We weren't partly dead. We were completely dead. And that God in Christ took us dead people and made us alive. He showed us clearly that he always has been and always will be a gracious God who works and gives to his people. Not that he waits for them to do the good works and come to God and make themselves worthy of the gift of salvation but rather that is constantly a blessing of God. We were dead. If you remember this, we were enslaved, and we were condemned to receive the wrath of God. But in these verses here in chapter 2, we are shown the love of God in Jesus, and we're transformed into living, raised, uh, even seated with Christ saints who are beginning to experience the spiritual blessings that he's given to us in the risen Christ Jesus. 
But as we move to the second part of chapter 2, we move into seeing that this is not just a future, not just a spiritual, not just a heavenly reality, although that is true. In chapter 2, the end, we see it's actually a present, real, earthly one as well. Not ultimately, but the point that he's making here is striking out for us to understand that the Old Testament law is bringing us to understand Christ in a way that he changes everything. And we understand that this God has given us salvation in Christ. In the end of chapter 2, we are shown that Jesus Christ has accomplished all the works of the law. And that then, in him, a new humanity is created. A new group of God's people. The crazy part, though, is that this isn't only, as it was before for years and years and years, it is not only for the Jews. It is not only those who take the sign of circumcision and do all the things that the law said. The amazing thing is that this is for Gentiles, too. And not Gentiles who become proselyte Jews. What Christ did in his living and in his dying, his rising from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, has made it possible for all humans, all humans, to be united to him in faith and to therefore have reconciliation with God without submitting to the law of Moses. Now, we hear that and we think antinomianism, like, well, lawlessness, who cares? I guess I'm fine. No, our new king shows us that this law is wonderful and good. But the incredible thing in Christ is that no longer are we trying to somehow meet up to these expectations. Someone did it. Jesus Christ himself. It was done. It had been nullified because he fulfilled with all of his works. But this meant then that the markers that Israel so religiously held on to were no longer important for salvation in the way that they thought it once was. Only faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, being united with him, could save mankind from their sin. One step more in chapter 2, though, this meant that the Gentiles were now brought to the same level as the Jews, that they now were experiencing reconciliation with God and with his people. They were no longer required to become Jewish proselytes, but rather they were to trust Jesus and gladly follow the law of Christ and therefore become a part of the same body as all the other believers, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, women or, free, or, or, or men, slave or free, Italian or Ethiopian. All mankind was brought near to God and to one another through the work of Jesus Christ if they were to believe and trust and love him alone. Paul has taken the first two chapters then to tell us all about our identity, what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, he's prayed for us. It's a beautiful thing, and now he's going to pray again in chapter 3. If you take a look here, you're going to see he knows that these saints do not have any power of themselves. He is going to pray that God would be working in them to strengthen them, to increase their faith, to cause them to to know the love of Christ. But you'll notice in the first couple of verses, that's, that's not what we read yet. We, we didn't get to that yet. He's not ready to do that quite yet. He begins the words of his prayer in the first verse of chapter 3, though. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, and you're ready for him to give us a verb, but he doesn't. Now he takes the time to explain himself. 
He's about to pray. This is how he, he started things back in chapter 115. If you look, he says the same thing. For this reason, and then he prayed for them. He's about to pray, but as he does so, he stops off. This sounds a little arrogant, but you'll get it. He stops off to talk about himself. Now, as you'll see the words, it's not an arrogant boasting whatsoever, but he stops off to talk about this. He wants them to remember that the things he is praying are important. That this isn't just Joe Schmo praying guy who wants to encourage people and give them a few words and some tips. No, this is an apostle of Jesus Christ with the truth of God revealed to him so that they might know and grow and do according to God's revealed plan. So he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. If you look there in that first verse, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now you know from Philippians that he tells us that this is true. This imprisonment that's real, very real, is born out of the fact that he is first in bondage to Jesus Christ. That he is a servant, that he is in bonds of Jesus Christ. But here he adds this little part of being on behalf of you Gentiles. He really is writing from a, a prison. Ephesians is one of the, the few prison epistles that Paul wrote. But he points out that the, the reason he is even in prison is not only for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of Christ on behalf of the people called the Gentiles, those that need to hear the gospel. His Gentile mission was what he landed in prison for in the first place. And so he can honestly call himself a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. If you think about that, it's a term of commitment and sacrifice and true love that he has for these people, a willingness to be imprisoned for Christ for the sake of these Gentiles. But then in verse 2 he goes on, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that, he, that was given to me for you. He's kind of saying, some of you may not have heard this before. Some of you may, but some of you may not have heard. So I'll tell you, may keep it straight here. I have been given the stewardship, or we would say, the responsibility to administer the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Nothing in here says, I'm Paul and I deserve this gift. I mean, a gift is never uh, earned. He says it over and over. This wasn't Paul's message. Remember what Paul was doing uh, before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what he was doing? Persecuting, imprisoning killing these people that called themselves Christians. He was persecuting them, and he was doing all these things. And it's like when you get a new job, though, this is what Paul was given over. If that's what he thought was happening, if they thought of him before, all of a sudden he's telling and welcoming them and said, let me give you the message of Jesus Christ. What in the world, Paul? This can't be that it's some sort of human message. It is a stewardship that was given to him graciously by God. It's kind of like when you get a new job, Maybe if you've been at a company long and you, and you continue to work into potentially management, and maybe you're tasked not with putting a certain number of hours in each day, or not like you're not tasked with making a certain number of widgets, but rather you're, you're given the responsibility to steward or manage an entire process filled with people and problems and ideology, and your goal is you've been given this whole thing to take care of and to steward well and to be responsible to make it work. I mean, you think about this, you know, you've got to hire workers and supervisors and managers. You've got to deal with the problems. You've got to make sure your messaging is clear. 
You gotta be ready to lead your organization. You have to train people. You have to correct people. Uh, you have to make sure that they understand what their job is. And you even have to think long past you into the future that this endeavor is continuing past your leadership. And you have to put all those things in place. That's the idea that Paul has been given this responsibility, this stewardship of the gospel to the Gentiles, the mystery of Christ. Now, that's the kind of stuff that Paul is talking about here. And we know that he's not the only apostle, right? We know that he has others that are like him. But in this way, he is very unique that he is given specifically and strongly to the Gentiles. He's been given the stewardship of the grace of God to the Gentiles. Again, remember that what we heard back in chapter 2. In Christ, Gentiles had been brought near. You go back 10, 12, 15 years, this is crazy for most folks to ever understand this. And that's why Paul is still receiving imprisonment because of his mission to the Gentiles. But this is brand new in a sense that no one had thought what this was just going to happen. No one knew anything about how to talk about such an endeavor. No one, in a sense, knew the theology, the problems that would rise up, the endeavors that it would go further and further than way past the apostles. Here in the beginning of chapter 3, we are getting a peek into the ground-level truth that Jesus Christ is revealing the mystery to Paul and commissioning him to preach this revealed truth to the Gentiles. He says, uh, uh, let me tell you about how I was given this stewardship. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. He says, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, we've heard that word mystery before. If you remember back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 talk about the mystery. And we're going to get to that as we go on, especially as we get into next week and we continue. We'll talk about it today. But he says here that the mystery has been made known to him by revelation. Again, this isn't Paul's message. It is revealed to him. He says there, it's been written briefly. Now, what is he referring to? It could be that he's talking about the letter that he wrote to Colossians. But it's also possible he's just simply referring to what he's already written in the letter. He's told them already of this incredible divide that's between Jews and Gentiles that has been reconciled as they're reconciled through Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I've written to you briefly. Like, you can tell, you know who I was and you know that it's, it's a little bit strange that I would now be talking about reconciliation in the person of Jesus Christ. As the Gentile believers read this letter and hear it read to them, probably, they can tell that these are not Paul's original thoughts on the matter. In fact, many of them are very surprised. If anything, they know that the natural Paul hated them. He persecuted Christians. If you think about what he's trying to do, any divergence from the Mosaic law, he was all over and on top of and correcting it to the point of persecution and imprisonment and killing these people. So the thought that that this was just natural and it's okay, Paul made this up, is ludicrous. Only God himself could reveal to this, uh, this message to this man, Paul. This truly is the mystery of Christ then revealed to Paul. But this next part is important too. Paul admits that this is not something uh, that is, you know, Paul admits that this is a new teaching in one sense. Look in verse 5. He says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. What Paul is telling the Gentiles, and also the rest of us here, Jew or Gentile, is something that no human being was ever told before. This is new. What he means by that, Paul is talking about a mystery. Now, he doesn't use mystery like we think of like a murder mystery, or we're not sure it's kind of a secret and dark, and we wonder what's going to happen, or only really smart people can figure this mystery out. No, he is talking about an open mystery that is now proclaimed from the rooftops. It is not as though you have to join the society and then get initiated, and then they let you in on the secret. It is openly spoken and proclaimed to the world. The mystery is the one humanity that Christ made it himself is made up of Jews and Gentile. The mystery is one that humanity could not predict or understand with natural eyes, and it had been revealed by God himself. And that's exactly what happened. The mystery of Christ was revealed to Paul on the Damascus Road. I mean, can you imagine that? He's the person that he has been persecuting, the one he's trying to stop all these people following, meets him and says, hey, I purchased your soul. I am the Lord, Jesus. And in that moment, Paul, all of his entire past makes sense. And he finally understands that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah that was promised. This is not a new truth that could be discovered by any human alone. I mean, if I can tell you this, it doesn't matter how smart you are. See, even today, it doesn't matter how much studying you do. You will never come to the truth of Jesus Christ in the open secret that it is, the mystery, without the work of the Holy Spirit. Every act of salvation and revelation of truth is an act of the Spirit of God. Paul understood this, and he speaks more, though, than about just individuals. He talks about, in our context, the speaking of revelation to Jesus Christ's holy apostles and prophets. See, he turns that statement on that little phrase, now. You see that right there. He says, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Jesus' words in the gospel are wonderful words of life. They're pregnant with meaning and truth. But it wasn't until his Holy Spirit revealed it that the New Testament apostles and prophets understood all of Jesus' words and actions and life and meant that there was a new people of God, the body of Christ, and that would no longer come through adherence to the Mosaic law. By God's design and according to his plan and timeline, the Spirit of God revealed the truth to his apostles and prophets. So we ask the question then, what is so new about the mystery that had not been revealed before and the other generations to men? I think this is a really helpful thought because wasn't it that Gentiles would be included in the God's people? Well, if you know your Old Testament at all, we know that already. We know that people would be brought from every nation. We know even from Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that Abraham, through him, all the nations would be blessed. Or Psalm 2, 8, we find out that God will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. And we knew that Gentiles would be included in the people of God. So the question is rightly, what makes this a mystery then? What was not proclaimed to the men of other generations? Well, it's the manner in which he makes his people. We know this. Before Christ, salvation was through faith in the promises of God, through obedience to the law, which looked like becoming a Jewish proselyte. But no one knew that God would bring a Jew and a Gentile together 
into one body in Christ. Listen to verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is radically new. I mean, we would expect that Gentiles can maybe be fellow heirs and maybe be part of you know, the same body of people and maybe be partakers in some of these promises, but this would all be done by obedience and faith in God through the law of Moses and through all those Jewish signs and markers. But that is not what Paul says. Instead, he says, it is in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This means that the promises to Abraham, I'll go further back, oh, to Adam or to David, all the patriarchs, all the promises that they received are not only for the Jews, but they are for the one true Israel. And who is that one true Israel? Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. In Christ Jesus, all the law has been fulfilled, and through him and him alone can we experience all the promises that were made to Israel. So from our perspective, does that just happen automatically? Well, we, we read the first chapter, right? In him, before the foundations of the world, like in Christ, we were chosen? So that just happened automatically? So, no, from our perspective, actually, we understand that this does not happen automatically, but rather through the gospel. It is real. It is understandable. It is not robotic. We actually have to hear the preaching of the gospel, understand who Jesus Christ is, and trust him and him alone. This is how we understand what's happening right here. He says, through the gospel. This is why the gospel is the sweetest message that we have as believers. This is why we say that we want to be gospel-centered. We cannot lay hold of Christ without faith in Christ, without believing the gospel message. Oh, friends, this is what Paul was called to do. Look at the next verse in verse 7. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul has been called to minister, to steward, to be responsible for the gift of God's grace, the gospel, which is to all people. He's not ashamed of it, but rather it is the center of everything that he does. And I want you to notice here that Paul is making it abundantly clear that this, again, was not his thing. It was not something that he drummed up. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. At least five things there that we have to see. Paul didn't do this on his own. He didn't come up with it. He didn't make himself a minister. God made him a minister. He didn't earn the gospel. It was God's grace to those who believe. And just for good measure, he clarifies it again to say that it was given to him a second time. It was not by Paul's efforts. It was the working of God's power. I mean, my goodness, if we miss that it's because we, you know, if we miss this idea, that it's of God's grace alone, we are either incredibly arrogant and blind, or we're just not very good readers of this text. The gospel is the gift of God, the grace of God that brings all men who believe it to be saved and to experience every spiritual blessing earned but for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, because we are in Christ, 
we experience the blessings revealed in this mystery. Think about this. We are co-inheritors. In other words, we get all the blessings of Israel. We are co-body members. In other words, we are just as much part of the people of God as any pious Jew. And we are co-sharers in the promise. We are sharers of the promised Holy Spirit who makes and marks off his people and opens their eyes to see and savor Jesus Christ as Lord of all. So we stand back today and we thank God for the words of Paul. We understand that the red letters are wonderful. They're a good gift to us. They are good and precious words. But we must not despise in any way as lesser the words of Paul. For if we do, we are left without salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul is the one that made sense of all this. Jesus is hinting on the whole time, but now we see as Gentiles, in Christ we get all the blessings. We must not despise these. We are left, if we do, if we despise these as lesser words, we're left to become like the Jew, you know, to either become a Jew or hope for those breadcrumbs that fall off our master's table. The truth is, when I think about this passage, it's a little bit strange for application. But man, is it wonderful. It shows us the truth that Paul's words and all of the words of the scriptures are wonderful, good words, revealed words from God. And they are to be taken authoritatively that we would love them and obey them and know the God of these words. The second thing I'll just point out is that the mystery that we Gentiles can be co-heirs co-body members or co-shares in these promises is absolutely astounding and wonderful. Let us then not hold tightly to what we can do for God, but let us hold tightly to the one who makes us these things. If we don't hold tightly to Christ and Christ alone and try somehow to earn these things by what we do as Christians, we've completely missed it. And we are not his people. The mystery is that we can be co-heirs, co-body members, co-shares of the promise because of our connection to Jesus Christ. The last thing I'll say is this. The gospel, what we can say in words and understand to be true, at least conceptually, is the truth that we must continually proclaim as the sweet message of God to all of the world. It is our hope as Gentiles, and it is our hope as Jews, all people, union with Christ and receiving all of his benefits are impossible without full-fledged love for God and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ as our Savior and King. As we go into the next section here, before we start to pray, we're going to see this even further played out. That We're seeing that Paul is showing all of these things are God-wrought blessings of his gift to us. So as we are called, especially in chapter 4, to obey, to be exhorted to good works, and understand the playing out of that, we remember with thanksgiving and, and loyalty the grace that has been given to us as Gentiles receiving the gift of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, you are truly a gracious and giving and blessing God. We deserve nothing but your wrath. We know that we are condemned, we are enslaved, we are dead. But in Jesus Christ, you made us alive. 
in Jesus Christ, not only did you make us alive and reconciled to God, but you made in yourself one humanity. And now we are reconciled to you and to one another in Jesus Christ. And it's through the preaching of Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus has done it, has fulfilled the law, that we find rest and we recognize that we too can know God and have reconciliation through God and God alone. We love you and ask for you to continue to work in us. Pray that we'd be hearers. I pray that we would learn. I pray that we would love you and that our hearts would exult in you to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we praise these. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.